0: Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke 22 and verse 14. We're going to continue our doctrinal series on worship. And so this will be a very doctrinal sermon. It will be a little less preaching and a little bit more teaching. And so I pray that you will suffer through that. A few weeks ago, we considered the sacraments generally... Uh, But now we start to consider them particularly. We're going to start with the Lord's Supper, which would seem a bit reversed, except for the fact that I have just preached on baptism in Enoch's uh, baptism. And so we will go to the Lord's Supper, which would be a bit out of order normally. But uh, we will come and consider baptism at another time. So with that then, and as we pick up the reading here, as we have not been in Luke 22, uh, we are coming to the, the night of the Passover, and so that's where our context picks up in verse 14. So now give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, Luke twenty-two fourteen through 21. These are the words of God. Let us receive them as such. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Amen. Such solemn words. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we come now to the preaching of the word. And Father, it is a mere man who preaches now. Uh, It it is just a man. And so, Father, this man needs the Spirit of the Lord, that the preaching of the Word would have its desired and intended effect, Mm -hmm. that we might be chastened for our sins, that we might be exhorted to seek the mercies of Christ, and that we would see Christ and Him crucified in this text. O Lord, these things are beyond, beyond the power of any man, And so we ask that your spirit would be upon the preacher and that your spirit would be on the ears that hear the word now. Lord, it is the desire of the minister that the minister would decrease and diminish, that Jesus Christ may increase, that we may see here the Lamb of God slain before uh, the foundations of the world. And so, Lord, help us, O God, behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We ask this, in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we began to learn about the sacraments in our series on gospel worship. We saw that they were holy ordinances. I preached the whole sermon on it, so I'll just give you the shorter catechism definition. Holy ordinances instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, that is, signs that make sense to our senses. Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. That was just the overview. And we heard from Romans 4.11 that they are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. So as we see that these sacraments are instituted by Christ, we see that in every institution of a sacrament, there is significance in the institution itself where it takes place, and why the Lord instituted it when he did. Because we remember from our catechism and the scripture, sacraments are not even instituted by God as God, but they are instituted by Christ the God-man as mediator between God and his church. They are part of the new covenant, and they are administered and instituted by the mediator of that covenant, Jesus Christ. And so we saw sacraments are only for his people. They are only for the church. They are not for all men. Now, the word of God is a little different. The word of God is for all men to receive. Because men as a whole must hear the word of God to be converted. And so the word is administered, if we want to use that word, uh, promiscuously. Right? We go into every highway and byway. We go and we preach the gospel to every creature. And so the word is for everyone, but the sacraments are only for Christ and his people. And we saw as well that there are two parts to a sacrament. There is the outward sign that you perceive the sacrament with your senses. And then there's the inward grace, which is given to you by the Lord. The outward signs are the elements of the sacrament. In the case of baptism, it's what is it boys and girls water, right? In the case of the Lord's supper, it is bread and wine. And those Elements then, when they are taken by faith with all of the ways that the sacrament is to be administered by the church, truly do feed us on Christ when we come to it by faith. They are true means of grace through which Christ ministers his person and work when the Spirit of the Lord blesses our faith in coming to it. And so today, as we come to the Lord's Supper and we see its institution, we will see some of these principles in action. We will likely have a few sermons on the Lord's Supper, just to keep uh, that in, uh, in your mind, as I won't cover everything tonight. There is much to cover because it is, sad to say, a sacrament that is much abused, misunderstood, and neglected. Papists, they abuse it with their blasphemous mass and their abominable doctrine of transubstantiation. While on the other hand, closer to our camp, evangelicals often treat it as a bare memorial, like the only words that were given were, do this in remembrance of me. Whereas the apostolic doctrine is, there is a true presence of Christ spiritually in it. So we will have to take time to consider the presence of Christ in the sacrament. Some have an aberrant view on frequency, saying it must be done in every worship service. And some downplay the need for preparation and self-examination. So we will have to consider preparation for the Lord's Supper as well. Some have a misunderstanding on the elements of the Supper, saying it has to be, I'm not saying it cannot be, it has to be unleavened bread, which is untrue, or substituting the wine for grape juice. So we will have to consider the elements of the Lord's Supper as well. Some find no significance in the sacramental actions and the setting of the Lord's Supper? Why should there be, as our church does, have a common table and a common loaf, a common cup? Why is the sacrament designed to picture our unity and not individuality? We have to consider these things. Even in the actions, when the minister breaks the bread, does that action have significance? It does. And so we'll have to consider the administration of the Lord's Supper as well. In many ways, the supper is misunderstood and abused today. And what I want us to remember always, as we considered in several doctrines on worship that we have considered thus far, the weakness of the church is often found in misapplying and misunderstanding the ordinances of God. That was exactly what the apostles said to the church in Corinth. That it was abusing the sacrament. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep, that is die. It is often the case the church is not strong spiritually because we misunderstand and misapply the ordinances of God. And so that's why it is vital to get these doctrines on worship correct so that we would be a strong body through the strength of Jesus in honoring this holy institution and receiving the blessings that come out of it. So as we begin this sub-series on the Lord's Supper in our series on worship, let us begin with its significance. The significance of its institution, why the Lord instituted it when he did, and the significance of its elements, why he used those sensible signs. And then we will build on this foundation in upcoming sermons. So with that, we'll divide our time on the supper two heads. First is the significance of its institution, and second, the significance of its elements. So first, the significance of its institution. Now remember again that a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Jesus Christ. And I hope you see in our text that this sacrament is not instituted by the church. Right? We have to get that straight. It is an institution by Jesus Christ himself that the church receives and administers according to his design for it. That again flows out of that regulative principle of worship, our regard for the Lord, that we must only do what he commands and not do anything else. We cannot invent sacraments as the Roman Catholic Church does. We see that this is the regulative principle of worship. And it also means, we must remember, that we as a church have no power to change it from its institution. As Christ instituted it, so we must observe it. Our practice is to be how he intends for it to be observed. What did the Apostle Paul, see, here's the Apostle right writing on the sacrament. What did he write? He cites our text in Luke, and he says to the Corinthians, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. When he is speaking of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.23, even the apostle would only give and convey to the church what the Lord delivered to him. And that's what we do when we come to the Lord's Supper. We look, what has the Lord delivered to us? We must do it here as he says. Because each of the, the elements here, each of the actions taken, the setting itself has spiritual significance, and we must understand all of it. So let's first observe the significance of Christ's institution in two parts. One is Christ's timing in its institution, and second, Christ's care in its institution. So let's look at Christ's timing. There are three things you might want to note about it. It took place after the Passover, so it wasn't the Passover meal. It took place right after the Passover meal. It took place, second, on the night which he was betrayed. And Paul finds that significance to note. Third, it took place on the evening before his crucifixion. There was a deliberate action taken by the Lord in the timing of it so that these things could happen. It took place on the Passover first. Uh, it was not the Passover meal, but it occurred after the Passover meal. It would have taken place when the Passover meal was ended. And so when we see the Lord take the cup and bread after the supper, as Luke notes, it's after the supper, he had put an end, what he's showing, he has put an end to sacrifice once and for all. He shows forth his death in the bread and the wine instead of the Passover lamb. He doesn't point to the Passover lamb. He points to the bread and the wine and says, this is my body and this is my blood. And he says, this is the end of the Passover. That's why we don't have a lamb at the table with us when we have the Lord's Supper. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5.7. And so in the death of the Lamb of God, the Old Testament ceremonies were ended. But not until his death. See, this is important in the timing. That's why he instituted the supper at the end of his ministry and not the beginning of it, right? It would make no sense to institute the Lord's Supper at the beginning when sacrifices were to continue until he goes to the cross. Then it took place on the night in which he was betrayed. Paul, as I mentioned, takes aim to mention it. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. And look at the timing. He mentions it, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and so forth, right? In 1 Corinthians 11.23. That is also mentioned here in the last verse that we read, in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. You see, when the Lord mentions that, He is telling you that he knows exactly what is going to happen to him. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. It did not take him by surprise, but it was his own design. It was his own design, friends. He knew what must be fulfilled, as in Acts 2.23, speaking of him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. On that night, He knew that he must be betrayed so that by wicked hands he may be crucified and slain. The significance of noting this, friends, is that our Lord, God made flesh, came to be delivered for the sins of many through betrayal and wicked hands and by his own will. When he says it was the night in which he was betrayed, he is reminding you that Jesus Christ knew what was going to happen to him and he did it on purpose. He had purpose in its institution. He knew this was the night in which he was to be betrayed. He was no unwitting or unwilling victim taken by surprise. He was in control, and he had to do what was so painful, to be betrayed by he who had eaten his own bread. And it took place as well the evening before his crucifixion. You know, the death of our Lord is signified by this meal, and that's what makes it a solemn meal. Not long after he had eaten this meal with his disciples, he would be beaten and scourged. And in the morning, he would be crucified. It's a solemn meal, friends, that proclaims the Lord's death for sinners like us until he returns. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, And as in verse 19 in our text, this do in remembrance of me showing its perpetual observance until the second coming of Christ. Friends, this is why he instituted it on the night he was betrayed. It was meant for you to remember his death. It would have no meaning if he had instituted it at the beginning of his ministry. And so having seen Christ's timing in its institution, I want to see what flows out of it, which is to consider Christ's care in its institution. You know, the care of Jesus Christ is all throughout the supper's institution. His care for you, his disciples, his desire for you, his love for you. You see it everywhere in the institution of the Lord. Even consider Christ's desire in verse 14. And when the hour has come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him, verse 15, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer So that's during the Passover meal. But do you see the desire of the Lord? What does he say? he has a desire to eat with his people. And the translation of the word desire is really too weak, sadly. The Greek word actually signifies a craving. Uh, The New King James, you might notice, says fervent desire is how it translates it to insert that, that sense. And it is really a play on words, friends. The craving That word is used as a craving that you might have for a meal. But the Lord turns it into a craving for what? A craving to be with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. A craving to eat with his disciples. His craving was for them. His desire was not for the meat, but it was for them. And so, beloved, the significance of the supper is that you find Christ saying he cares and craves communion with you, his people. The thing he would do, the one thing he would do before departing is spend time in fellowship with his disciples, to have a meal in which he declares peace to them. You know, I want you to consider this, right? Because you really know what a man has in his heart when a man knows he will die, maybe from a terminal disease. And the doctor says, you have a week or you have a month or whatever. And he looks at what he would like to do before he passes into the next life. It tells you what that man loves and that what that man has desired in his life. Maybe some men say, I want to go and see a foreign land. Maybe I'll go to the beach one last time or go to a favorite restaurant or visit, try to visit estranged loved ones and make peace with them. But what was the Lord's fervent desire before he died? That before he went into glory, fellowship and communion with his people. And so when we come to the table, we come because we see that the Lord has the desire and he is the one that has set the table and not the elders of the church. And as the Bible says, not that we first had this desire, friends. No, far from it. We love him because he first craved us, that he first loved us. You know, in Christ, you must never neglect to see this in the supper. There is a true and real affection and bond between him and his people. And he did it at that time to give them strength and encouragement to show how committed he is to them. This is my body, which is given for you, right? I go to do this for you. I go to do this to shed my blood, the cup in the New Testament, which is shed for you. I do this because I care for you. My passion and my suffering is because I crave you. If I do not do this, as we saw this morning, I will only know you for a little while, then you will die, and then you will go to hell. And where I go, you cannot go. I go to heaven, and you will not go there. And because I crave you, I will soon die, and this sacrament will be done in remembrance that I crave and desire communion and fellowship with you. And all of that is signified in the institution and the timing of the institution of the sacrament. Now, there's another analogy that goes with what a man sets forth at the end of his life. Because when a man is ready to pass away, he gets his affairs in order. As the Lord told Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20 verse 1, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Set thine house in order. Write a will. Leave your inheritance to your heirs. We still use that term. A man who's about to die, maybe he's growing old, is told, get your affairs in order. This might be the last checkup you ever have. Get your affairs in order. And that is actually seen in the institution of the Lord's Supper. This cup is the new testament. The new testament in my blood which is shed for you. This sacrament is the last will and testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons of many we use the King James here is it preserves some of these rich truths that other translations have slowly started to discard. Even the New King James translates this poorly. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. But it has more force when it is translated, this cup is the new testament in my blood. After all, we call this the New Testament, don't we, friends? And that is where that testamental language comes from. Here and in Hebrews, the word translated testament is diatheke. It can either be translated covenant or testament. The sense has to come out of the context. In relation to the supper, as our forefathers have long seen, it should be more properly translated testament. Why? Because it is the inheritance that a man bequeaths freely upon those who will be his heirs. That's what's signified by that language. And that language is most notably used in Hebrews nine fifteen through 17, which is where you should see testament must be used. Listen to this. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament... They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. See, that's why it is more properly called a testament and not a covenant. The death of a testator. A covenant can be made without death. But a testament requires the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Okay, so what you're seeing is to be an inheritor of God in Jesus Christ, the testator, Jesus Christ must die. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. All that is God's is yours in the New Testament made in my blood. The Bible says Jesus had to die that we might receive his inheritance. And so in the Lord's Supper then, and sometimes we don't see this when we come to the table, you see its significance as the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. That you might be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8:17. 17. That all that is Christ's is yours and he freely gives it to you, the heirs of salvation. As the Father in the parable said, and all that I have is thine. You see, you have You have become heirs of all that Jesus Christ has. That's what a testament is. He gives it all. He bequeaths it all on his people. Right? That's what a testament is. It's like I retain nothing. I give all to you. And a last will and testament, if you think about this, shows who a man truly cares about. Right? A man can say many things in his life, but once the will is opened, you know really who it is that the man cares about. And sometimes people are shocked by that. Sometimes family members are astonished at who is in a will and who is not. Sometimes you find it's the dog of all things. But you find here that our Lord Jesus Christ has cared for his disciples, his people. If you have faith, friend, you are in Christ's will. This cup is the New Testament in His blood. You receive a sign at the Lord's Supper that says, I am Christ's, and all that is Christ's is mine. His righteousness is mine. Heaven is mine. And above all, God is my portion because Christ is God's and God's is Christ's. You must rejoice that your name is written in His last will and testament if you have faith. That Jesus Christ remembered you on the night in which He was betrayed. And so when you come to the supper, remember that you are an heir of God through the blood of Christ and that shows his care for you. He remembered you in his will. Friend, don't rejoice that your parents left you an extravagant will. But rejoice that Christ did. His is the only last will and testament that matters. You may inherit a lot from your parents, but if you go to hell, You have nothing, friends. You have nothing. Rejoice not over the material inheritance that you may or may not have, but rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. You know, if a last will and testament, this is still our practice, isn't it? Uh, It needs to have witnesses when it is ratified, right? And, And the Lord certainly had them. The apostles who sat there were his witnesses to these things. In Acts one twenty two, it said a qualification to be an apostle was one must be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Right? They had to be witnesses of Christ, and they send their witness to you that you might be sure that you are in the will and testament of Christ through the word of God. You see, they have they have left you this new testament that is in his blood, but shown in these words in the holy scripture. And that's why the New Testament in his blood has no, um, has no meaning at all without the Word of God. And that is one reason that the Word of God is preached to you, and texts like this are certainly preached to you before you partake of the supper. Otherwise, you don't understand what is going on. Because without the witness of the Word, this sacrament has no meaning. But when the Word meets the sacrament by the Spirit's blessings, All these things, by faith, come together, and it becomes a means of grace to you. Now, I want you to see one last thing here before we move to our next heading, is that you, the church, must see that you are, as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, not just this body here, you are joint heirs together with Christ. The Lord shows here that he is addressing many as one, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. You, of course, King James is very helpful here to show you it is plural. the, The folly is taking this text and seeing you as you singular. But we are together in the will of God. We are together in Christ's testament and heirs of Jesus Christ. His craving was not for one of you alone, but all of you together, plural. And that's why this is a communal meal. At the Lord's Supper, friends. And so if Christ has a care and a love for you all, what are the implications for each individual Christian? They are to love those Christ loves. Right? We cannot come to the table then without loving one another. That would do violence to the fact that we are joint heirs together of Christ. There are other matters of significance in its institution, such as its setting, which we will have to address when we come to the administration of the sacrament another day. So we'll leave this heading now. For having seen Christ's timing and care in it, we must consider our second head, which is the significance of its elements. Now remember, again, there are two parts to a sacrament, the outward sign and the inward uh, reality of the grace conveyed to us. The elements are sensible signs. And so there is meaning in the elements that are chosen, and that's why it is dangerous to deviate and, in fact, can, in fact, invalidate the sacrament if we deviate from it, because these are sensible signs that point us to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes when the elements are changed or they are um, twisted, in a sense, we stop seeing the sense that the Lord has for us to see spiritual realities, um, That's why we must have understanding when we come to the table as well and we see the elements before us. We must know the significance of the outward elements. And the elements of the supper, our boys and girls have gone through the catechisms and so they can tell us very easily the elements are two. They are bread and wine. The bread signifies the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we look upon the bread, especially at the sacramental actions, we are looking upon, in a spiritual sense, the body of Jesus, and we meditate on his body given to us and broken for us. It is the gospel in visible form. The wine signifies the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that when we look at the wine in the cup, we meditate upon Christ's blood. That's also signified by the way the elements are to be handled by the minister and the actions taken on them. I'll deal with that in the administration of the uh, the sacrament. But there is significance in the minister blessing Right, asking the Lord's blessing on the elements because they represent the body and blood of Christ. It represents the blessing that God has given us in blessing us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, a body hast thou prepared me, Hebrews 10.5, God has blessed us with giving us the body and blood. There's also significance to the breaking of the bread by the minister. The breaking of the body of Jesus is shown in that. This is my body broken for you. As the minister breaks the bread, there is significance to the pouring of the wine into the chalice. This is my blood of the testament, which is shed, which is poured, that is, for many for the remission of sins. The sacramental actions upon the elements signify deep spiritual truths that are often lost when we don't uh, use them the way they're meant to be used. But lest I get ahead of myself again, let's consider the significance of the bare elements today. What they together remind us of is, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John six fifty four. That's what they signify. They symbolize that in the body and blood of Jesus Christ is eternal life. No place else you can go for it. Only in his body and blood is eternal life. So let's begin with the bread that signifies the body of Christ. Bread has several significant qualities that the Lord in wisdom has chosen to make it suitable for this institution. And I want you to see that when we say they are sensible signs, we think to ourselves, why has God in wisdom, why has Christ in wisdom given us such a sign? Why didn't he choose something else? There is spiritual significance to the things he has chosen. And so we must investigate those things. Bread has several Qualities that make it suitable for the institution. The first is that bread nourishes, right? Christ's body nourishes us. In our first sermon on the sacraments, we heard that sacraments sanctify and strengthen us. They are not converting ordinances, but bread is like the manna in the wilderness. It is given to sustain us on our pilgrimage. So when you see the bread, you think on Christ alone as your strength to persevere as a pilgrim. He said he is the bread of life, John 6, 35. Bread is also made of constituent grains, right? This speaks to the unity and composition of Christ's mystical body, the church. The apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, for we being many are one bread. Do you see that? The apostle uses the same analogy. We being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Do you see how the linkage is made here? Between the multiple grains in bread as representing the body, the mystical body of Jesus Christ. And we are one body because we are partakers of that one bread who is Jesus. All of us at the table then join with the universal church as one body, the body of Christ. And that is why the sacrament is to be one loaf and not pre-cut crackers We are one body made up of constituent grains, so to speak. Now, bread is also created solemnly through a violent process. You know, the grains are threshed and they are ground. So too, the Bible says, Christ was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. Bread is baked in a hot furnace. So too was Christ solemnly put into the hot oven of God's wrath. So in the bread... Think of how costly it was that his body was broken. That his body was broken for you through the wrath of God that was due to your sin. But also, bread is meant to be ingested and digested by you, right? And when bread is digested, it becomes a part of you. It truly does. When you come to the table, you are seeing you are one with Christ. It signifies John six fifty six. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Do you see that? By the ingestion of the bread and the drinking of the wine, it represents the eating of the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ, representing that he dwells in you and you in him. So you might ask with some of the significance here, um, what kind of bread should we use? Now, sadly, there are controversies even over the element of bread. So we should ask the question. You know, in some churches, they demand we use unleavened bread because that is what Christ used at the Passover. But Reformed churches do not tend to use unleavened bread, but common table bread instead. Because the word used for bread to be used in the Lord's Supper is artos, as in 1 Corinthians 11.27. And the Bible seems very deliberate in avoiding the kind of bread translated unleavened bread, which is adzumos. It seems that Christ, just through circumstance, used unleavened bread because that is what was used at the Passover, but that was circumstantial. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be celebrated universally in every society. And so the prescription in the New Testament is for common, ordinary table bread common to your society— That your sense of the bread, right? These are sensible signs. That your sense of the bread is equated with regular bread that you are familiar with, which heightens to you the significance of spiritual uh, nourishment. Uh, I eat bread like this to be nourished. And so I see that this is the bread of life in Jesus Christ. So whatever bread our society has used relays nourishment to us. And so in our place, common leavened bread can be used. In a different context, unleavened bread could be used. But to demand unleavened bread is to go beyond the sense of the Bible's prescription. And again, that's why Reformed churches have usually used common leavened bread. The other element, so that's the bread, the other element in the supper is the wine. uh, Red wine at that because it signifies the blood of our Savior. And you have to, when you look at the wine, right, you have to have your meditations go to all the many ways that the blood of Jesus Christ is spoken of so that when you see that dark red wine in the cup you reflect on meditate on the blood of Jesus from hebrews 9:22 we see almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission without this shed blood i am not forgiven is what you see from zechariah 13 One, we see in the cup a fountain of blood for uncleanness. I see that my uncleanness is washed away by the detergent that is the blood of Jesus Christ. From 1 John 2.2, we see in the cup the blood that reconciles us to God, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And I see in the cup that God's wrath is turned to favor because of this blood. From John 6.54, we see in the cup our eternal life that comes from drinking his blood. From 1 John 1.7, we see in the cup, that cleansing of all our sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Every sin has been cleansed from my soul because of the blood of Jesus. That's what I see signified in the wine. From Hebrews 9.14, we see in the cup, think of it, the cleansing of our conscience. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God... Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Acts 20.28, 20, in the cup is the great value of our salvation because we read in that text that the blood in the cup is solemnly called the blood of God. In Psalm 1.4, we see in the cup the love of Christ. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. When you peer into the cup, friends, you peer into such things by faith. You are meant to. As with the bread, our Savior chose wine to communicate these sensibilities that through a meditation on His blood, you might grab a hold of these spiritual truths. And I want us to consider also some of the qualities of wine that make it significant in its use here in the Lord's Supper. Just as with the bread, Wine is created by pressing and crushing grapes. Isaiah 63, three. I have trodden the winepress alone, and the people of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. Christ was trodden and crushed on the winepress of God's anger and fury so that the cup of wrath that he drank to the bitter dregs is turned to you, what the apostle calls, a cup of blessing. In Psalm 104, verse 15, we see the cheering aspect of wine. Wine is said to cheer the hearts of men. And the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, as we saw this morning in the Beatitudes, is meant to cheer our hearts as saved sinners, that those who mourn will laugh, Those who mourn will have joy over their salvation. It cheers our heart. Wine also, you know this, if you've drank wine, it warms us. It has a warming function as well. Christ warms our heart. There is, at times, a bitterness or sharpness in wine due to the tannins in it. Just as the Passover was to be eaten with what kind of herbs? Bitter herbs, right, friends? It's designed to be there by the Lord's institution, that there is still a, 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 even though our salvation is sweet, there is a bitterness in it, because the Son of God was slain to mix our warmness and gladness with mourning the death of the Savior. Wine is also used for medicinal purposes to eradicate germs and illnesses. Paul told Timothy, "Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities." First Timothy 5:23. And so you see, as alcohol is used to purify and eradicate germs and illnesses, so too in 1 John 1 7, the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. For all these reasons and more besides, friends, the Lord Jesus Christ deliberately instituted wine to represent his blood. Now this <laughs> this might sound a bit controversial today, but let me ask the question, what should we use? Should we substitute wine then for something else? The answer is no. Sadly, as of late, this element has come under attack and is often substituted with grape juice. But let's be clear, friends. Jesus instituted wine and not grape juice. There's no such thing as grape juice in biblical times, because as soon as a grape's skin is crushed, fermentation begins. The history of grape juice is actually interesting. Lest you see this as a divergence, I think it has some very good application for us. You know, you might not know this, but grape juice is actually connected to the church. It first comes into the world through the church, strangely enough. Many don't realize it. It came from the church. Dr. Thomas Welch, you remember Welch's grape juice boys and girls? He was a Methodist minister. A lot of people don't know that part either. Uh, His voice eventually failed and he could no longer preach, so he became a dentist and served the Methodist church as a communion steward. In 1869, he invented a method of pasteurizing grape juice so that fermentation was stopped and it became non-alcoholic. He then persuaded local churches to adopt it for communion, calling it Dr. Welch's Unfermented Wine. Grape juice was invented when he pasteurized crushed grapes, And the reason for this was it was during the time of the temperance movement, which had started to infect churches. And churches became what Ecclesiastes 7.16 warns us of. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. You know, it is fine, absolutely fine, if you wish to abstain from alcoholic beverages, right? I, myself, I hardly ever drink. I I don't really have a care for it. But... Friends, in the worship of God, this is gospel worship, to substitute what Christ has ordained, that he himself, peering down the corridors of time, understanding that men will be drunkards, he himself instituted something that had alcoholic content in it. He, there were other beverages he could have used to signify the Lord's Supper at the time. Well, he uses water for baptism, after all. Perhaps there were other things he could have used, but he chose something that had alcoholic content. So it's fine, absolutely fine, if you wish to abstain outside of the worship of God from alcohol. But to substitute what Christ has not ordained, that it does not seem to be proper. And I want you to see with the sensibilities that we had seen in wine, it's a sensible sign. You see in sweet, cloying grape juice, you lose most of those sensibilities. You lose the cleansing and preserving sense of the sacrament. Grape juice spoils. You lose the heartwarming and cheering aspect of wine. Wine is alive. That's what fermentation is. But grape juice is dead. That's what pasteurization is. And it is telling, and I don't mean to be insulting in this, mind you, to anybody, but it is telling that grape juice is the beverage of minors and not adults. And it is maturity that is called for at the table of the Lord. So while I am sure the Lord is very gracious to accept corruptions that I perceive as a corruption like grape juice, it is our duty to administer it in its uncorrupted form. Our responsibility is not in the worship of God, right? Our responsibility is not to ask, how far can I push the ordinance until it is no longer an ordinance of God? That's not my responsibility. That's not my, my motives in worship because I don't know where that line is, frankly, and I don't want to hazard a guess lest I offend God. I want to just do what God says. He says, this is wine, I stick with wine and simply observe it as the text demands. It is a sensible sign and we lose a sense of the spiritual realities if we lose the sense of the sign. And I hate to end on controversies like that tonight, but it cannot be helped. We have lost so much, not just in how we disregard this sacrament, but in every point that we go away from the institution of the Lord in every place and every time. We have lost so much of our Savior in our departure from the institutions he intends for us to have. It is no value though, beloved, I'll just say this. Even if you celebrate with wine, as we do, even if you have the one loaf and you have the common table, if you don't meditate on the truths we have meditated on today, it is of no use to you, right? You come with a spiritual sense, just like singing psalms. That is the gospel ordinance, but it is of no use to you if you do not come and sing praises with a heart of faith. Just as when you come to hear preaching, it is a gospel ordinance. It is of no use to you unless you receive it by faith and love and reverence. And so you must, when you come by faith, meditate on such things as we have meditated on and draw your attention beyond the bread and wine to Jesus Christ himself. There is much more to the significance of the supper that we could not get to in this sermon. I think I will pick up next time on preparation for the supper. But in short... See the sacrament as one that grows you in grace and comfort, that says Jesus is ours and we are his, that this is his will or testament for you expressed in an unbreakable testament, that all his benefits are yours to have freely received by faith. What love is signified in it, what grace there is, what a Christ there is in the sacrament. When you think of the sacrament's institution, think of it preaching 1 Corinthians three twenty-one to 23 visibly. For all things are yours, whether Paul or, Apos- or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's what this sacrament pictures. All things are yours through the body and blood of Jesus and his New Testament. There is a richness to the sacrament. We do not often meditate on, brethren, but we say fervent meditation is necessary to come to the supper to be blessed. And you have to ask, when was the last time I thought on any of these things we have talked about tonight? Think on them. May you remember his care for you, his disciples, and say to your beloved, next time you come to the supper, we will remember thy love more than wine. Amen. May Christ bless his word to us. Please rise as we seek him in prayer. Our Father and our God, what a thing it is to be in the will and last testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even that he died, O Lord, we see, is because he first loved us and craved us, his elect, who were in Christ from before the foundation of the world, which then necessitated the death of the testator, Jesus Christ, O Lord, what wonderful love there is pictured in the Lord's Supper for us. Help us next time that we partake of it, not partake of it as a ritual, as a bare memorial, but of Jesus Christ saying, all that I have is yours, that I suffered on the night in which I was betrayed, out of love to give you heaven and to give you myself, that you may have God, that God may be your portion. O Lord, help us see such things and help us see beyond the signs to what is signified. Lord, bless the preaching of the word to the grace and health of your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen.